morning, church. How is everyone? Good. That is good. It's a positive start. Um, the other day, I saw a survey that was done, and the people in the survey were asked this question. Which word best represents God? And the four options were authoritative, distant, critical, and benevolent. And the results of the survey um, were quite surprising to me, so we'll have a look at the results now. It's coming. Anyway, so is around 26% of people said that God was primarily an authoritative God. 23% of people said that God was primarily a distant God. 26% of people said that he was primarily a critical God. And just 25% of people primarily said he was a benevolent, kind, well-meaning God. And it just struck me that that's, it's really sad that just one in four people who were asked that question thought that God is primarily kind and primarily well-meaning towards us. And this morning I want to talk about knowing God as our good father. And I can confirm that God is good even when uh, the Six Nations doesn't go to plan. He is still good, just in case anyone was doubting that. Um, but I don't know what you actually immediately think when I say God is our Father. Whether you have a positive or a negative image in your mind probably depends on your experience of your earthly dad. Lots of us may have had a strained or challenging relationship with our Father, or may not have had a relationship at all. And we're seeing some of the highest levels of fatherless homes in history. Of single parents, 90% of single parent homes are single mothers. So at the outset, I want to acknowledge that I think it may be hard for us to think, for some of us, it may be hard to think of God as our father, or it may at least be difficult for us to relate to. But whether your earthly dad was good, bad, or absent, I think this talk is equally as important for all of us. And for those who've grown up in the church, it might feel like quite a basic topic, God is our good father. Oh, there we go, he's coming. Um, but I find, I don't know about you, but I find there's a huge difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. For example, when people say things like, don't worry about what people think of you, just worry about what God thinks of you. It's easy to have that as head knowledge, but to know that in our hearts and put that into practice is more difficult. It's hard to not worry about what people think about us at times. And I think it's the same with God being our good father. It's easy to know that as head knowledge and to know it theologically, but it's really different to knowing that in our hearts and allowing it to impact all areas of our lives. So generally in life, we have to achieve to receive. I was thinking in school, we have to achieve good grades to get into college or to get into university. And in our careers, we have to perform well to get a promotion. In sport, you have to do well. Uh, for your teammates to accept you and for your teammates to like you. And I can remember growing up in my football team, some of the boys would feel a huge pressure during the match to do well so that their father would be pleased with them at the end. And we sometimes translate that onto our relationship with God, that we have to perform or be good in order for our father to love us. Yet at Jesus' baptism, we see how the father's love couldn't be any more different. When Jesus was baptized, he was around 30 years old. And we don't know that much about his life up to this point. 
He hasn't yet started his ministry on earth. But as he's baptized, we have this picture in the Bible where the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and the Father's voice comes from heaven and these words are the words he wanted Jesus to hear. This is my son who I love. With him I am well pleased. This is before Jesus has done anything, before he started teaching, before he's achieved anything, before he's performed healing miracles. All he's done so far is be a son. And of all the things the father could have said to him, he chose to say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the Bible's clear that the father's love for us is the same love as he had for Jesus. So the question for us is, do we know that before we've done anything, he is pleased with us and he loves us? Do we know that nothing can make him love us any more or any less? So what's one of the differences between head and heart knowledge? When I say, do we know, do we know his love for us? It's interesting that in the Greeks or in the New Testament, there's several different words for the word know. One of the words is oda or ioda. And you can use this for things like, I know the queen. I ioda the queen. I know who she is. Whereas when we look at a verse like this, 1 John 4 verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. This word know is genusco. So take Richard, for example. Richard has been married to Sue for, I won't test you, Rich. I'll, 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 <laughs> he hasn't got a clue. I'll go with 30 years-ish. Um, so Richard, after 30 years of being married to Sue, he would say, I genusco Sue. And it means to know her in an intimate way. He knows her through their relationship and through their experiences. And so genusco here, to know God's love, means knowing it through an intimate relationship and experience. Uh, Auntie Mavis on the prayer meeting a few weeks ago was sharing that uh, a few years back she heard the audible voice of God speak to her. And I find in those kind of moments where God crashes into our lives, it helps us to know his love in our hearts, in that knowing way, in that intimate relationship way. So going back to the words that the Father spoke over Jesus, this is my son who I love, with him I am well pleased. If Jesus needed to hear this, or the Father wanted Jesus to hear it, how much more do we need to know it in our hearts? And straight after his baptism, Jesus is in the desert being tempted by the devil. And the first thing the devil says to him is this, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. He leaves out loved, he doesn't say if you are the loved son of God. And he questions whether he is the son of God. The enemy's primary effort at Jesus was to attack his identity as God's son. And I think it's because he knows the power that comes with knowing that we are a loved son and that the father is already pleased with us. There's a power that comes with knowing who we are and whose we are. And so often in our relationships, they're defined by what we achieve. Whereas in God's kingdom, once we're his child, he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, who I love. And with you, I am well pleased. Just like Jesus at his baptism, the father also says this over our lives. 
So I want to look at three aspects of his goodness towards us. The first one is the fact that God keeps no record of our wrongs. Then I want to look at his kindness. And then the fact that his love is extravagant. I don't know if you've ever felt that someone is upset with you, but often it changes the dynamic in the relationship. You feel more distant from them. And I think one of the enemy's favorite lies to tell us is that the father is upset or disappointed in us. This is something that I've personally battled with in my life, especially in my teenage years. When I drifted from God or made bad choices, I felt like I couldn't come back to him straight away. I felt like I almost had to hide or distance myself from him because he was disappointed with me. And I'm convinced it's because the enemy knows it's impossible for us to have an intimate relationship with someone who we think is disappointed in us. In the Bible, we see the story of Sarah, that God doesn't hold her wrongs against her. Sarah was Abraham's wife, and she was really old when God told her that she was going to have a child. She knew it was biologically impossible at that stage, and she actually laughed at God when he said this. Now, some people think it's a mocking laugh. I think that's a bit strong, and I think it's more of a laugh of sheer unbelief. And then when God asked Sarah, why did you laugh? She panicked, and she lied to God. She literally lied to God and said, I I didn't laugh. Eventually, Sarah did have faith and believed, and she had the child. But in Hebrews 11, in the New Testament, hundreds of years later, the Hebrews 11 lists the great heroes of our faith and what they did. And we find Sarah there, and this is what it says about her. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. You can imagine the Holy Spirit directing whoever's writing that, saying, tell them that Sarah has been faithful to my promise. She had a child because of her faith. She was amazing. This is my daughter. She had such great faith. There's absolutely no mention of her unbelief. There's no mention of the fact that she lied to God. Sarah may have felt that God was upset with her or disappointed in her, but it's so clear that our Father keeps no record of our wrongs. He only thought good thoughts towards Sarah. And the second aspect of his goodness towards us, I want to look at his kindness. And last year, I think it was in May time, uh, Rachel Hughes spoke at the wildfires festivals that we watched as a church. Um, And she spoke on Jesus' disciple, Peter, and I just love the way she presented it. Before Jesus is crucified, he says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter categorically ruled it out. He says, even if the other disciples are going to deny you, I would never do such a thing. I would even die for you, Lord. I would die for you, Jesus. And just before Jesus is taken away for his crucifixion, Peter goes and outright denies that he knows Jesus three times, just as Jesus had predicted. And I was thinking, can you imagine how Peter must have felt in that moment? in the moment where he'd realized that he had denied that he knew his friend who he'd spent the last three years with. He must have been in such a dark place. I I think he must have felt horrendous. And I love it afterwards when the angel, delivering one of the most important messages in history to the woman at the tomb, says this. Don't be alarmed, he said. 
You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter. In Peter's darkest moment, the Lord wants him to know that it isn't over. You are not disqualified, Peter. Even though you messed up, I am still for you. And Peter. He is so kind. Our father is so kind. And it reminded me of uh, a story that my friends were telling me. My small group leaders were saying that, so they recently moved to a new city, and they've been there for around four years. And they're both pastors in a church, and they have seven children. So money is a bit tight, and so it meant that they have to be quite strategic with what they eat and when they eat. Um, and they had never been out for a meal as a family as a result in the four years that they had been there. And one day, um, my friend was just asking God, God, I'd actually love to take my kids out for a meal. Some of them have never been to a restaurant. I'd love for us all to be able to go out for a meal together. But they didn't have the money, so they were like, God, if you want to provide, we, we would love that. We would love to have this time as a family. And a few weeks later on Valentine's Day, a card came through in the post from her mum. And it had a bunch of money in it, and it said, I want you to take your kids out for a meal together. And so they did. They had an awesome time. They said that um, the, kids did, the children didn't know how to behave. They'd never been to a restaurant. They said they did 27 trips to the toilet. <laughs> and when they came home afterwards, um, my friend was just thanking God. She was just thanking God for providing out of the kindness of his heart to, to give them this money that they could have a great time out as a family. And as she was praying, she heard the Lord speak to her. And these are the three words he said. He said, thanks for asking. Thanks for asking. He's so kind. He's so kind. He's so generous. He's so given. And then the final aspect of his goodness towards us I want to look at is his extravagant love for us. And this is no better displayed than in the parable that we know as the prodigal son. I don't know if you know the definition of prodigal. I had to look it up. And this is the definition. Spending money or using resources freely and recklessly, being wastefully extravagant. And we often focus on just the sons when we read this story. But I also wonder whether this definition kind of fits the way the father acts too. So for those of you who aren't that familiar with the story, there were, there were two sons. One of them asked for his inheritance early, which is obviously uh, a bit of a no-no asking your dad this. You're basically saying to your dad, I, I actually wish you were dead. Um, I don't want you anymore. I just want your money. I don't want this relationship. I want the things that you have. And he goes off, and the Bible says he spends it on a wild living. He lives a wild life, and he ends up spending all of his money. He's extravagant with his money. He's wasteful. And he gets to this low point where... He spent all his money, and he ends up looking after pigs for a living. And this is against Jewish custom of the time. Pigs were seen as unclean, and they still are. And it got that bad that he thought he'd go back and be a servant for his father. He thought, oh, my father's upset with me. I'll go back and I'll try and earn my way back into his love, earn my way into forgiveness by being his servant. I'll offer to be his servant. And then this is where the father comes into the story. And this is what we see. It says, 
but while he was still a long way off, the son's coming home, while he's still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He wasn't filled with disappointment or anger. He was filled with compassion. And I love that he was, while he was still a long way off, so the father was looking. I have no idea how long he'd been looking there for. Maybe day, I have no idea. But he was waiting for his son and he saw him as he was a long way off. And after being filled with compassion, the father, it says, runs to his son. And for any respectful man in that culture, at that time of that age, it would have been quite a humiliating thing to do, to run. It's quite reckless of the father, when we think of our definition of God, it's quite reckless. And then we see, bearing in mind that the son who's been looking after pigs is technically unclean because he's been looking after pigs. And if the father were to touch him, he would become unclean too. This is what he does. He throws his arms around him and kisses him. It's extravagant. It's reckless. Yet, even after the father has done this, the son still didn't get it. The the son still said his pre-rehearsed line of, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Can I, can I be a slave for you? And I think sometimes it's a bit like us with God. We just don't get it. We don't get his love. The father must have been like, son, you've repented. You've turned around. You've come home. And your behavior, your mistakes, taking your inheritance early, none of that can exclude you from being my son. He makes it explicitly clear to the son. And Actually, I love that the father actually never responded to when the son said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't actually reply to him. He, he almost doesn't give it the time of day, but he shows and makes it explicitly clear what he thought of him. He brought sandals, a ring, and a robe and clothed him in them. And they, between them, show that he was accepted, that he had a high position, that he could come back as a son, not as a slave. He freely gave all those things away. He's saying your mistakes can't stop you from being my child. And later on, the older son heard the party, um, and he was upset that the father had used the fattened calf to celebrate his homecoming. The older son thought the father was wasteful, wastefully extravagant. So yes, the son was wasteful. Yes, the son was extravagant in how he spent his money and reckless. But how much more extravagant was the father's love and compassion. How much more extravagant. And our father too, as soon as we take one step towards his love, runs towards us with his arms wide open and throws himself around us. You know, church, the enemy loves to try and get us to work for things that the father, through Jesus on the cross, has already given us for free. He wants us to work for things that Jesus has given us for free. So, my final point. If, if God's our good father, if he loves us, and before we've achieved anything, and if his love is kind, keeps no record of our wrongs, is extravagant towards us, what does this mean for how we relate to him? And I want to camp out in Romans 8 verse 15 for a bit on this point. And this is what it says. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. 
Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We get to relate to him as children. We've been adopted into his family. We can cry, Abba. And Abba's a term of endearment. It's like calling him Dad or Daddy or Papa. It's amazing that God, who is holy and sacred, who we have reverence towards, yet we still get to have this intimate relationship where he's our Abba. It's in the same way that we see children who feel secure in the love from their parents. They feel comfortable to cry when they want to cry, to have a tantrum when they feel like it, to cut their parents when they want. We too can be real and transparent with our Father, being secure in the love he has for us. And then the second part of the verse that stands out to me is adoption to sonship. And we live in as adopted children of God. I recently read a book called Experiencing the Father's Embrace. And in it, it talks a lot about this spirit of adoption, this adoption to sonship. And it compares it to those who don't live as children of God, which it describes as an orphan spirit. And there is a table that I've actually printed out so you can, well, not me personally, but there's a table at the back that you can take with you uh, at the end of this service. And I just find it something that's, I find it really helpful to see whether areas in my life where I'm living as a son and areas in my life where I'm still not yet living as a son in, his, in the spirit of adoption. So this is a few of those things in the table um, that you can take with you later. And these are the characteristics of a son and someone who's not living as a son. So on the left-hand side, someone who's not yet got a heart of sonship strives for the praise and the approval and acceptance of man, whereas someone who has the heart of a son is totally accepted by God's love and doesn't strive for acceptance of man. Our self-image, when we're not living as children of God, we feel self-rejection when we compare ourselves to others. Whereas when we are children, we feel positive and affirmed because we know we have such value to God. And for our source of comfort, when we feel anxious, when we feel frightened, afraid, fearful, when we're not living as sons or daughters, we seek comfort in things like our addictions, the busyness of life, or hyper-religious activity. Whereas when we're living out of our sonship in Christ, we seek the quietness and solitude to rest in the Father's love and in the Father's presence as our source of comfort. Now, I don't use this table as something as a stick to beat myself with if I'm not getting things, if I, if I feel like I'm more aligned to the orphan heart at times. But what I do say is, God, like if, like if there's areas in my life where I'm not yet living as a son, help me to know you as my good father in this area. Help me to become more as you want me to be, to live out of the sonship that you have bought for me. Because at the end of the day, we act out of who we believe we are. So if we don't get who we are right first, our actions won't align. And for me, I, went, I want to get to the point where I know the Lord as my good father, where I know deep in my heart that I'm his beloved child. Because I think once we know it in our heart, it'll impact every area of our lives. Once our identity is set, we can live from love, not for love. We can live from a position of being approved, not living, seeking the approval of man. We can live from favor, not for favor. And just as I invite the band back up,
to close. Church, we saw at the start, I don't know if uh, Jonathan's able to bring the graph up at the start, the pie chart, but we saw at the start that 75% of people don't see God primarily as a kind father. Just 25% of people, one in four, think he's primarily good towards us and a well-meaning father. And I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe we as the church are partly the reason. Or maybe in our daily lives, we haven't accurately reflected the father's love to those around us. But what I do know is that before we can share the love of the father with those around us, we first have to know his love deep in our hearts. So the Father loves us before we've achieved anything. He's not upset or disappointed with us because he keeps no record of our wrongs. And we've seen how extravagant his love is towards us and that we get to live as intimate, adopted children of God. I don't know if any of those specifically resonate with you or or challenged you. I know for me, pretty much all of them are still on the journey from my head to my heart to get them to the point where they impact every part of my life. But as we sing this last song, whatever resonated with you, I just want to invite you to ask the Father to come and to touch you, to show you just how good he is. So if you want to stand with me, uh, just before we worship our good Father, let's stand together. If you want to put your hands out in front of you as if you're about to receive a gift from your dad. I just want to pray this prayer from Ephesians over us. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide, how high, how deep, and how long the love of Christ is. And to know, to genusco, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Let's worship our good Father.